Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. I'd like to welcome our live audience here in San Francisco and our radio and online audiences. You can always visit us at www.commonwealthclub.org. It's my great pleasure uh, tonight to introduce again uh, Professor Elizabeth Cobbs, who has been here several times with other work that she has done um, and is a great speaker. And uh, this time she's here to speak about her novel, The Tubman Command, about Harriet Tubman. Thank you very much for coming again. Thank you, George, and thank you, everybody, for coming out to share with me something which I find passionately interesting. Um, And we begin with a mystery. On the night of June 1st, 1863, two U.S. gunships crept up a river in South Carolina towards Confederate rifle pits, towards artillery on shore, with underwater mines ready to blow up their ship and alligators infesting you know, the shores and the water. Um, they were on a river that led deep into what was then known as enemy territory. And the question that I want to look at tonight, the, the question we're looking at is how it was that this ship could penetrate 25 miles inland when there was a Confederate army posted only 10 miles away, how they could get all the way up this river and burn four plantations to the ground, liberate 756 people against 2,000 Confederate veterans nearby, 300 men on board this ship, by the way. So there was a handful of white officers and 300 troops of the U.S. colored troops, the second South Carolina, as as it was known. So question is, and here's the mystery, why did they set out that night? Why did they pick that target at the, at the nadir, at the depths, at the lowest point of the American Civil War? Why did they, why did they do it? And how were they able to pull off this great, if, this great victory without suffering a scratch, without losing a man? Who was guiding them? Could it have been Harriet Tubman, the former conductor on the Underground Railroad, who many historians believe was at the event, but she appears nowhere in the military record. Nowhere in the record of those events. Nowhere does it say that Harriet Tubman was at the right hand of Colonel James Montgomery, who had ridden with John Brown during the era of bleeding Kansas, you know, 10 years, not quite 10 years before, but several years before. Um, And in fact, it's not in the record. And so at least one historian and sometimes other historians have cast doubt on something we can't Traced to a record. It's said that she was there. Many historians believe she was there, but we don't have it in writing in the way that we think we ought to, to be able to say with absolute certainty, this was Harriet Tubman. And this makes us wonder, makes me wonder, are we seeing in this fragmentary evidence, I'm going to lay it all out for you and ask you to draw your own conclusions. Are we seeing what we want to see as modern people, the single most heroic female patriot in United States history. Are we seeing that because we want to see it, or are we seeing it because we have enough evidence to conclude it? So the question becomes really, who was Harriet Tubman in the American Civil War? Not in the Underground Railroad. Yes, that's a big and important part of her life, and I can take questions about it. But this novel concerns a period of a week and a half in 1863. So who was she in the Civil War? Was she a nurse and a washerwoman? for Union soldiers, or was she a scout, a spy, and ultimately a military veteran? So that's my mystery. That's my question. (laughs) So what I want to do today is sketch this evidence for you and ask you to draw your own conclusions about the famous Cumbie River Raid of 1863, June 1863. And so uh, in the process of that, I want you to draw your own own conclusions, as I said, but I also want to tell you about my novel, The Tubman Command, um, and how I'm hoping to use this novel to bring the story alive and help us sort of think through 
the evidence we have and draw some interesting conclusions. Now, you might ask yourself, and so I want to lay out first, why in the world would a person write a historian? And I write mostly nonfiction. So I have eight books. This is my third novel, but mostly I write nonfiction. So why would we use nonfiction, and pardon me, fiction to understand Harriet Tubman? And that's because we have a problem often when, when we write in history about people who have, whose lives have not been very fully documented. And that's true of a lot of women, especially. And of course, people of color and a person who is illiterate, who herself, Harriet Tubman, never learned to read and write. So she couldn't write down the facts of her own life. So there's two problems. First of all, our evidence is scanty. Most of us, our lives will not be fully documented except on Facebook, right? (laughs) Facebook didn't exist back then. The other problem is that we tend to disbelieve the evidence we have when it is scanty. We say to ourselves, well, gosh, if that's not in a history book, it must not have happened. But this is why we use fiction sometimes to look at the the points that we do know and, and to try to work our way through thinking through how it might have happened. And in this case, you know, how it could, how the implausible could have plausibly happened, which is this tiny, you know, five foot nothing woman black woman could have convinced to develop the intelligence, convinced a group of white officers and helped to lead this very important military raid. So um, I, I've used this technique before. Sometimes when I've looked at other historical characters about whom our evidence is scanty, um, but, uh, and then sometimes in fiction as well. Last time I was here at the Commonwealth Club, I talked about America's first women soldiers. We actually had the records on, but the army tended not to believe that these records meant anything. Now there, you, if you dig deep enough, you can find evidence. But the problem with someone like Harriet Tubman is what we really have are glimpses. It's a long time ago. We're not going to have the photographs. We're not going to have the diaries that we can go to, the, it, the personnel records in the National Archives. Harriet Tubman was a volunteer. You don't have personnel records. And the other element of her work, which makes it hard to pin these things down, is that we must remember that everything she did was clandestine. So a person who's operating clandestinely or a person who's committing crimes as she certainly was in liberating people on the Underground Railroad, they're not going to document that because they're just hoping like heck that they're never going to get caught because, of course, their lives and other people's lives depend upon it. So this is the reason to use fiction on something with where we have, in a way, we have some good hard pinpoints, but we don't know a lot of the stuff in between. Uh, fiction, you might say, lights the dark corners of the evidence. That's unavoidably there in a subject like the subject of Harriet Tubman's military record in the American Civil War. So essentially what we're looking at today is how this tiny woman infiltrated enemy territory in Southern Carolina, South Carolina, gathered intelligence at the risk of her life, convinced a group of highly educated white men to take her advice and guided the first major mission of black troops in America to victory. So sketching the scene a little bit, you might wonder, okay, where are we at in the American Civil War? And I realize we're, we're always trying, trying to level set here, you know, when, what decades we're talking about and all that. Um, so the, the, the scene, the book itself is set in South Carolina. And it's not only because she was there, but in some ways that's, that is the emblem of, of uh, the American Civil War. The war broke out in South Carolina. Uh, which was always considered kind of the hotbed of secession. The first plans for secession were hatched in South Carolina, which became the first state to secede almost immediately following the election of Abraham Lincoln. And of course, it famously, it was at Fort Sumter where the um, federal government refused to leave its own federal fort that the South fired the first, first bullets, you might say, of the American Civil War in April of 1861. Well, the war went terribly for the first couple of years, and uh, hundreds of thousands of people die. Uh, men die, mostly. Um, and, of course, it was widely assumed around the world that the South would win. Of course, the South would win. The South, the 11 states of the Confederacy, are larger than all of Europe. So think of that. What, how likely was it that the American government was going to be able to keep an area bigger than Europe you know, 
at, you know, uh, in, in harness with it. And of course, by the way, the Europeans who looked upon this struggle thought that exactly. They just thought it was, you know, almost ridiculous. Uh, and so they were um, supplying, well, actually, really both sides. You know, why not? It's good business. War is good business. And, and the United States did not make clear, the Union did not make clear at the very beginning that it was about um, the abolition of slavery. It wasn't about that per se. Of course, from the point of view of the South, it was about defending the existence of that institution. So that's one reason why one of Lincoln's first decisions was so critical. He understood that the rest of the world would supply the Confederacy if they could get ships through. Think Rhett Butler oh, or anybody else, right? You know, blockade runners. So the, one of the first things that Lincoln did was to establish a blockade. And that was basically to keep the South from being supplied uh, throughout the course of the war. Now, to make a blockade work, you have to remember that southern coastline is you know, huge, goes around, down the south, around Florida, over all the way over to Texas. So it's a long coastline. And on the eastern side, the, one of the first things the Union did was to try to get some sort of piece of land from which they could have a naval base. You know, some place to bring their ships back and get water and supplies and all of that. And the place they chose, the first place that was invaded and successfully occupied, were the Sea Islands of South Carolina. So the Sea Islands and the, my, the novel is set basically in Beaufort, South Carolina. I learned how to say the word Beaufort and Cumbie and other words according to the Southern pronunciations as a result of doing this book. It's, it's fun. Anyway, um, so it was there that the Union in one day captured uh, Port Royal Island and then Hilton Head Island, which are the islands that are right there off the Southern Cal- uh, South Carolina coast. And then they used that as a base, not only to, um, you know, make sure the blockade, the ships had some place to come back to port, safe port, um, but also as a way to perhaps launch an attack on the, on that symbol of the rebellion, the hated symbol of the Confederate rebellion, which was Charleston itself. Charleston, South Carolina was always kind of like, you know, where the, the hot heads were hottest, <laughs> so to speak. And so the Sea Islands would be an, uh, a chance to perhaps capture South, um, uh, Charleston and, and crush the rebellion. And so the Union early on in the war assaulted uh, the South Carolina Sea Islands. In one day, they captured them and then found themselves marooned there for about four years because <laughs> it was tough. Right. This was never going to be an easy war. So it was there that they that Harriet Tubman comes into the scene. And that's where my story begins. But let me also say, apropos of that last comment, that they capture it in a day that we must always remember that this battle wasn't just about north versus south. It was really about what was to be the meaning of America. Would America be the land of the free? Now, or would we continue to pretend that, you know, a big portion of our population, which wasn't free, was somehow not even there or something, you know, craziness. Um, and, and you can see this, by the way, in that very battle of Port Royal uh, offshore, you know, and captaining one of the Union ships was Captain Percival Drayton, who was born in Charleston, a South Carolinian, you know, attacking the Sea Islands of South Carolina. On shore was his brother Thomas. General Thomas Drayton, who is head of the defenses of Beaufort, of of Port Royal. So brother against brother, as we saw throughout the Civil War, fighting over what what America means. And there were Southerners on both sides, Northerners on both sides. So Harriet Tubman comes into this scene because when Port Royal is captured... It, of course, it has large plantations on it. This was a site of, of, had been a site of slavery for, you know, hundreds of years. Um, and so what happens, one of the first things is that the Union accidentally, oops, liberates 10,000 people. When they take those islands, there are 10,000 people there who are suddenly declared, well, actually, you might think they'd be declared free, but that is not what happens at first. They're declared contraband. Now, Okay, it's kind of weird, like you're thinking, what? Uh, contraband. Contraband is in a spoil of war. If somebody is, you have an enemy in war, you are, as their you know, opponent, uh, um, empowered by the laws of rules of sea and law and war and all that to take something that they will use to further prosecute the war. So even if it's private property, you can seize it. Um, and it was under that rubric that they seized the property, quote unquote, of 
of the plantation owners on Port Royal. Now, the man who was the head of U.S. military operations there was a fellow named General David Hunter. And Hunter's goal was to take these contraband and put as many as possible into uniform, you know, transform them into soldiers. Because, you know, the Navy had this base, but you need men to defend the base, right? You know, you got to have, you got to have soldiers there in case the South actually invades, which they threatened to do a number of times. Because it's really close. In fact, I had this totally weird experience when I, I, I drove there to do some research and I, I drove there and I, you know, from the Charleston airport and I suddenly find myself in Port Royal and I never crossed, I didn't think, a bridge. I'm like, whoa, I thought I was like going to be on an island now. Uh, and someone said, well, you are on an island, didn't you notice? But you don't really notice because it's so marshy there. It's the, what they call the low country that yeah, you can hardly tell that you were actually on an island, which tells you how close, therefore, they were to Confederate guns and Confederate artillery and Confederate troops. So being overwhelmed was not, you know, I mean, was something that could have easily happened. So General Hunter, his idea is that he wants to put all these guys, as many as possible, into um, into uniform. Well, there are two problems with this. First of all, Lincoln does not want to arm black men, right? So the idea of putting guns into the hands of formerly enslaved people was something that the Union was sort of figuring out early in the war, and that was something they were loath to do. And the second problem was that a lot of these men were reluctant to be coerced. They didn't want to be told you have to do this. They've been told you have to do X, Y, Z their whole lives. And plus, not to mention, it wasn't even clear that they were really free, right? You know, I mean, they were contraband. They weren't free men. And it wasn't clear. And even the Emancipation Proclamation didn't go that far because the Emancipation Proclamation finally declared June 1st, effective June 1st, 1863. What it said basically was that people who were enslaved in any area that was in rebellion, uh, those people would be free henceforth. Now, by the way, think of how that works. So you're free if you're actually in the Confederacy in the South, which, of course, where they don't recognize your freedom. But in the North, you're not actually free. So Harriet Tubman was from Maryland, and Maryland was a loyal state. That meant any members of her family who are still in Maryland are not by free by the Emancipation Proclamation. So for people who were being encouraged to join the Union as soldiers, think of it how, what a kind of terrible dilemma that would be you know they're they're volunteering to to fight and and risk their lives and possibly die for a union half of which wants them in chains you know half of which is struggling to make them free but which is also kind of ambivalent exactly about how that's happening all right so i know you're thinking wait a minute where's harriet tubman (laughs) it's okay so i had to get y'all i had to get us all up to speed there so there was a huge civilian population. So 10,000 people means there are a lot of women and children as well. Old people, people will not be brought in. And so what happens after the Sea Islands are captured is that there's an influx of missionaries. Now, most of these are white missionaries. There are a couple um, uh, African-American missionaries. And then there is Harriet Tubman. Now, Harriet Tubman, by the way, curiously, was sent by the governor of Massachusetts, who recommended her to David Hunter as a very valuable woman. Now, see, if you're just writing history, that's all you can say. Okay, done. You know. But if you're writing fiction, then you're sort of also thinking, well, what does that mean? By the way, I've never been recommended by any governor anywhere as a very valuable woman. So I think that there was a lot more going on here, that she was to do something that is not in the military record, as I said, but she's sent there at government expense to go to South Carolina to be of help, to be valuable. Now, why did she go? A lot of abolitionists stayed home. I mean, my goodness, this is a woman who had risked her life for 11 years on the Underground Railroad from the time she was 27, 28, you know, up until almost she was 40. You know, had gone back multiple times at risk of her life each time. In fact, I don't know of any other abolitionist who did what Harriet Tubman did. There were people who did, who, who crossed over, um, and that, that's true, but not to have gone back so many times with such a high bounty on her head and to familiar territory where she could be spotted and recognized. So it, it's absolutely remarkable story. So you would think that she'd be ready to put her feet up. <laughs> I would be, you know, so the war has, has you know, been declared. You'd think that she would allow the armies to do what 
what armies do, right? And there are certainly many abolitionists who did stay home. Um, you know, Frederick Douglass, he sent his sons very sensibly, sensibly right? Young men to, in his stead, and, and there were many others as well. But for some reason, Harriet Tubman felt she had to go back. Now, this says so much about her in general. Um, in fact, when I was researching this, I, I said to myself, and I think sometimes people say, well, you know, um, it, that a woman would do this. Isn't it remarkable that a woman would do this? Go back for her family. Because when she got to freedom, she later said in her biographer wrote down that she said, I got there and I was free. I'm paraphrasing. But she said, sort of what, what's the good of it? You get there and you're all alone. And anybody you ever cared about, every family member you have is back there a captive. And so then I thought to myself, I sort of turned it around. It's like, of course a woman would do that. <laughs> of course a woman would go back uh, for her family. So, and in the same sense, uh, with her decision to go um, to go south in the war, here she again volunteered for active military service after having been on the Underground Railroad for about 11 years. She served almost another four in the American Army. So she did all the kinds of things. I said, was she a washerwoman? Was she a nurse? Yes. That's the answer is yes and yes and yes. <laughs> she she uh, did nurse contraband. Um, she nursed the wounded. She washed clothes. She helped freed women start small businesses. People who had never figured out how do you earn money and didn't have that, you know, they done work all their lives, but didn't know how that how to translate that into a, a profit making kind of thing. And she also interrogated refugees. This is one thing we do know. People have noted again and again, um, because there were not only slaves there, but there were sometimes people who were also leaking off the shore, escaping because of this close distance between the South Carolina mainland and the and the islands themselves. And many of these people, they weren't going to seek out a white face first thing, right? They were going to seek out somebody who was well known, who was black, who could who could help them, you know, figure out how to um, how to share what they knew because they had very valuable information. So keep in mind that the Union is, this is before Vicksburg, this is before Gettysburg, this is when the Union has lost and lost and lost battle after battle. And it's really not quite clear you know, how the war is going to turn out. So, um, by the way, as she was described by General Rufus Saxton, he's one of the people who was in charge of the civilians on the island. Um, he said she was a spy who made many a raid inside the enemy's lines and was invaluable as a scout. So this this is the role she played. Um, and let me say one last thing before I tell you about the raid itself. Sometimes people say, and this is, again, it's sort of when you do fiction and nonfiction, it's different. Having written in both genres, if you write nonfiction, you cannot make up anything ever, nor should you. It's a sacred duty not to. Otherwise, the public doesn't know what's real and what's, as we'll say, fake, right? You can't fake anything if you're writing nonfiction. You can't fake a cloud in the sky. But fiction gives you a chance to sort of think through things from a different perspective and to actually make assertions about things we're not entirely sure about if we're just writing um, nonfiction. So with Harriet Tubman, people have raised the question, how come she was so brave? How did she become so brave? You know, was she just kind of like superhuman? In fact, sometimes when I write, think about writing about Harriet Tubman, it's sort of like writing about Mother Teresa and Queen Latifah and Spider-Man, kind of all rolled up in one, because she's this, this sort of heroic and, you know, daring person. And some people have even suggested, actually, that maybe she couldn't feel feel fear. That's why she's not like us. Um, it's been suggested that's partly related to a brain trauma she had. Now, one thing that you might not know about Harriet Tubman, which again, I think just kind of like knocks your socks off. If you think, you know, what makes her such an outstanding patriot, such an outstanding hero in American history? She was disabled. She had a very significant disability um, from as a young child. She'd been hit in the head by an overseer. I won't go into that backstory, but we can talk about it later if you like. Anyway, this created a great brain trauma. She got it by defending another kid. The kid was being chased, and she stood up for this other child, and she was hit in the head. So some people have suggested that the what we think might be temporal lobe epilepsy that it gave her, the kind of epilepsy it gave her, blunted her ability to feel fear. What it meant, by the way, is that if she was sitting there, as you might in this audience today or at home and hopefully not in your car because she could easily pass into unconsciousness and did um, frequently um, where she would be talking to somebody and suddenly not, not 
be conscious any longer. So imagine the valor that that would involve to volunteer for such risky assignments, knowing that you couldn't rely on your own ability to even retain consciousness consistently. So, uh, and then some people have said, well, maybe this is why, you know, she was so brave, you know, she couldn't feel it. But then I think to myself, why? She got that injury by standing up to an armed adult white male when she was 12 years old to defend another child. So she's somebody who started out with this great, you know, wellspring of internal kind of courage and willingness to, to risk her own, you know, well-being for others. Um, the other thing, of course, I think that makes her so remarkable along these lines, speaking of this disability, I'm, I know we've all heard about disabled vets, right? Lots of people, you know, not lots, unfortunately not lots, but we all know about disabled veterans, but they're not many people who go into the armed forces with a disability might come out with one, but think of the courage that's required to go in with one. So this brings us to this raid. Um, what historians can tell about it, tell us about it is, um, you know, a sort of limited amount. The, the, um, the colonel who was in charge of the raid, which happens from June 1st to June 3rd, 1863, when it's over, he writes one paragraph. Well, he's a busy man. He's a colonel. <laughs> the Union Army is very busy at this time. He writes one paragraph. Now, by the way, he doesn't mention Harriet Tubman, but he doesn't mention pretty much anybody. He just says the, the units of the 2nd South Carolina performed bravely, you know, mission accomplished. So what we do know about her, Harriet, as I said, is that she had per, been performing steadily this role of kind of uh, a, a go between between refugees and um, who are coming off the South Carolina uh, coast. And again, um, these were people who had a lot of um, a lot to say, you know, a lot of information. And in fact, uh, what we know about colored scouts, as they would have been called at the time, was something goes back to what Robert E. Lee wrote to a fellow officer in that same month, May 1863, as this raid was being planned. He said, quote, the chief source of information to the enemy is through our Negroes. Now, by the way, he adds then they are easily deceived with proper caution. So this is his own kind of weird cognitive dissonance. He knows that these are the people who actually have the information, that they are actually giving this information actively to the Union Army, but he's unable to face the fact that these are actually people who are really quite savvy. Now, by the way, when he uses a term like Negroes, he means slaves. In that period of time, the use of the word Negroes by Southerners was like equivalent to slaves. By the way, Harriet Tubman herself preferred the word black uh, in describing herself. So um, the, the American generals who are on Port Royal are very eager for the kinds of information that someone like Harriet Tubman can get from them. Uh, the South, second South Carolina, which was this regiment, there were obviously two, we can all count. There was the first South Carolina volunteers and then there was the second. The second were commanded by a man named, um, James Montgomery. And he had been a colleague or, you know, a fighter alongside James, uh, pardon me, John Brown in uh, Kansas. So what happens in this raid is that the South, second South Carolina, it was one of their, it was, it was in a series of events. In March of 1863, the second South Carolina had made a foray into Jacksonville, Florida. Now, not much happened. They got 13 bales of cotton. They liberated 30 people. Well, okay, it wasn't a big action. They come back the next month, April of 1863, a bigger, um, you know, bigger military raid is staged actually against Charleston. This is always this hope that somehow we'll get Charleston. Um, but it's completely foiled by the underwater mines that surround Fort Sumter and that guard the harbor of, of Charleston, South Carolina. Now, by the way, they didn't call them underwater mines. They called them torpedoes. Now, I know we're all thinking, wait a minute, I thought torpedoes are those things that travel through the water. Yes, that's World War II. <laughs> You've all watched too many motion pictures, right? In the South, in the South Carolina, pardon me, in the South, in the American Civil War, torpedoes were stationary mines that were underwater that were moored, you know, to the bottom or to the sides of rivers and, and um, estuaries and that kind of thing to keep out the Union because the South had no Navy. And that was how they defended their coastline. Well, when the Union attacked Fort Sumter in April of 1863, they, they lost one brand new ship. Other ships were almost destroyed because they were unable to proceed because of the torpedoes. And then they got trapped under artillery fire from Fort Sumter and, and other, um, other Confederate, um, you know, artillery, um, placements. 
So, uh, so this is what's happening. This, uh, there's a raid in March, there's a raid in April, and then somehow, and this is where our trail gets a little bit cold, somebody begins to plan a raid up the Cumbie River, which is what's going to happen, planned in May of 1863, and it happens in June, on June 1st, they launch it. Now, By the way, what we know about from history is that there was a reporter in town in Beaufort, South Carolina, who said, oh, there was a sudden change of plans. Ah, huh. What do you know? Um, And the Colonel Montgomery decided to sail up the Cumbie River and they left that afternoon. Well, it's hard to get 300 men supplied and armed and on board for an amphibious assault on a spontaneous basis. Somebody has to figure out a way around the underwater mines which are in every river, and that had, you know, foiled this previous assault on Sumter. And these torpedoes, by the way, were very, very deadly. Um, uh, the next year, when Admiral Farragut said at the Battle of Mobile uh, Bay, damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead, he, wasn't, he was talking about those underwater mines, and he had just seen the ship in front of him blown apart and sunk in a matter of moments. So these were very dangerous mines. And in fact, one of the ships that Harriet Tubman goes on up the Cumbie River is sunk the next year by a torpedo. So these are very, very real, very present dangers. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. So when the Second South Carolina sets out on the night of June 1st, 1863, and to go 25 miles up a river defended from the shore by artillery, from the underwater by mines, they can only do so, I think, doesn't it make sense, with excellent intelligence. They wouldn't even set out. They couldn't have set out without having some warning about where the torpedoes were. So I think, and this is why I'm hoping you will read my my book about this one and a one and a half week period, somebody found out where the torpedoes were anchored. Somebody discovered uh, that the Confederates had temporarily withdrawn their heavy artillery, interestingly. Somebody deduced that the pickets were undermanned because of the change in the seasons and there was a rise in malaria at that time. And somebody also likely found out that the new commander assigned to these 2,000 troops nearby had a reputation as a slacker. (laughs) He was new to that area, but he hadn't been drilling regularly. So somebody put all this together, sent it up the chain of command, and then helped guide the gunships once the attack was undertaken. And likely that was somebody working with a team of Negro scouts. Well, Harriet Tubman was in command of such a troop, uh, as she said in her later application for military pension. Um, interestingly, much of what we know about Tubman's involvement in the raid comes both from her application for military pension, which she applied for right after the war was over, and it also comes from her autobiography, which was written with the help of a woman named Sarah Bradford not long after the war. Now, unfortunately, the details are kind of sparse. You know, it's in there. She describes it. Um, she does not describe what the CIA calls sources and methods, because if you are a spy, the last thing you want to describe is exactly how you do things, right? And, of course, that was true of the Underground Railroad for 11 years. Anybody who'd been exposed to that much hazard is not going to be somebody with, as they say, loose lips sink ships, right? In this case, real ships. So um, what she did write in the, or was written for her in the autobiography corroborates what we basically know about that day from other sources. Three ships sailed from Beaufort. One of them grounded right away. Two of them continued on a tidal surge up the river. By dawn, they were in sight of the plantations. One plantation owner on shore, he had this weird thing. He, he thought he saw a woman or women on the top deck of the flagship. Of course, he doesn't know who he's looking at, but he, he sees that. Um, another plantation owner notices that they angle around the torpedoes. Now, the Cumbie River is what they call Blackwater River. So that means the water is as dark as the color of the seats that you're all sitting on here in this audience. Very, very dark. It's hard to see anything. But the plantation owners, of course, know where the torpedoes are because they got to get up and down this river all the time. So he sees this ship's angle around him. Uh, another plantation owner notices that the people on shore are not as surprised as he thought they ought to have been. You know, there were some people who apparently were expecting these ships. 
So again, somebody has gotten up this river and has infiltrated and has gotten people primed for it. What happens after these ships arrive is that frightened but jubilant slaves, um, you know, flock to the store, uh, to the shores. The colored soldiers get off. They deter some, um, their scattered regiments, but they manage to get past all of these, you know, emplacements. Essentially what happens is that the pickets run away. Nobody is prepared on the Confederate side for this thing. Um, and, uh, and as we know, uh, as I said, it was the second South Carolina, according to Tubman's documents, the reason why it was the second, as opposed to the first South Carolina is because Colonel, I mean, pardon me, General David Hunter said to her, I want you to go. And she said, I will go if you appoint James Montgomery. Now that's itself kind of weird. Now, by the way, Harriet Tubman was not a braggart. She just was not. And with this, we know from having looked at her history, you know, she wasn't a person who talked, she would talk about herself if asked, but that wasn't her style. I mean, she, again, she was, had been somebody who had to be fairly mum about her activities for the most part. And she said she doesn't go unless it's going to be uh, Colonel James Montgomery because of his close association probably with John Brown. And because he was also well known for being a person who was not loath to do what later was done in the war, which was to destroy civilian property if necessary in order to cut off the sources of supply to the Confederacy. So uh, Harriet Tubman goes up the river um, she is eventually, as I said, uh, she's commended by several generals. She's commended by Colonel Montgomery himself. She eventually is given a pension by the United States government 30 years after the war. And by the way, that's horrible and that's typical. Um, I recently wrote a book about America's first women soldiers. It took them 60 years. <laughs> and the women of World War II similarly had to go through this, a long process of being recognized. And I think it's because... We just had this hard time. If a woman did something, we think it must have been just some aberration. If somebody got that wrong, somebody just wrote that down wrong or something, because like it just doesn't compute in our uh, in our heads. Um, and now, of course, we all know that's not true. And as more information comes to light, it's easier for us to believe the evidence before our own eyes. So what's our evidence for her inv- engagement in the Cumbie River raid? Well, first of all, I think that it should be evident that black scouts made the raid possible. By the way, they were often commended, and then the book, I mean, it's it's kind of fun to go back and sort of see what these people say, and they're saying, you, you know, the Negro Scouts are the ones who actually can get on to the territory and get information and get off, because, you know, they're, they're, they know this terrain. So it's hard to imagine that intelligence didn't pave the way for the raid. Uh, hard to believe it was just a spontaneous change of plans. Second piece of evidence is that planters on shore saw ships maneuver around hidden torpedoes. They recognized that some key people amongst their own enslaved population were not surprised about what was going on. And as we said, one planter spotted either women or a woman on the deck, on the top deck of the flagship. Harry Tubman also wrote about the raid. Um, She didn't claim credit for having led it, by the way. And some people say, well, then that means that she didn't. No, I think that means she was Harriet Tubman. <laughs> she wasn't that kind of person. And she, fact, and she, when she talked about it, she said, we need to recognize the role of these black troops. And she talked about what they had done and the risks that they had taken. She wanted that unit to be better recognized. And that, to me, is not surprising at all. And, of course, um, General Saxon said she went behind the lines many times. Uh, Montgomery himself said she was invaluable as a scout. Uh, in her pension application, she listed eight men under her command because she was in command of a troop of scouts. Uh, she lists them by name. One of those men later petitions the United States Congress. Now, this is not somebody we think there's any reason for them to have continued to be in contact. His name was Walter Plowden. He says he went up river multiple times with others. Now, he doesn't say who he went with. Most people don't. When they write about their war experience, they're talking about themselves. That's just the way evidence tends to work. Um, so this is the why, in some ways, on the one hand, you know, as a, as this, you know, as a historian, you're, as a historian, when you write nonfiction, you're always saying, well, here's our evidence and here's what we don't know. On the one hand, on the, on the other hand, which always reminds me of President Truman said, I want a one-armed economist. And his advisor said, well, why? And he said, because otherwise they're always saying on the one hand and then on the other hand. I just want them to tell me. So um, with Harriet Tubman, you know, we come at last on the novel, you know, 
talks about these adventures. By the way, there's a love story because what's a novel without a love story? Which is another part of Harriet Tubman's life that I think we ought to know more about. She was a very pretty woman, by the way. Um, we know that from her uh, the runaway notice where it said she was a fine-looking woman. And in a runaway notice, you don't say, you don't compliment somebody. <laughs> Right. You're just trying to identify them so that on the street, somebody will recognize who they are. Um, so as the novel winds down and we, you know, flotilla limps back to Port Royal and it's a giant storm. Yes, it was a dark and stormy night. It truly was. And so that's in there as well. Um, at the very end, there was a scene that this is actually factual. It was recorded by a Wisconsin journalist, somebody who did not know Harriet Tubman, in fact, did not know her name, although learned that her code name was Moses. And he wrote, and this is our last piece of evidence I'd like to leave you with, Colonel Montgomery, quote, Colonel Montgomery and his gallant band of 300 black soldiers, under the guidance of a black woman, dashed into the enemy's country and struck a bold and effective blow without losing a man or receiving a scratch. And then he talks about Colonel Montgomery got made a big speech to everybody in this giant church. He was trying to recruit them for to become soldiers. He says the Colonel's speech was followed by a speech from the black woman who led the raid and under whose inspiration it was originated and conducted for sound sense and real native eloquence. Her address would do honor to any man. And it created quite a sensation. She is called Moses. So no historian can say with certainty, no one can document with multiple corroborating sources the role that Harriet Tubman played, uh, the kind of day-by-day account that would allow us to pinpoint exactly what happened. But fiction can help us imagine it, can help us see it, can help us feel it. So are we making too big a deal out of Harriet Tubman, you know, who was asked recently, or not asked recently, but who was recently slated, sorry, to go on the $20 bill, Right. And I think some people think, well, maybe we're making too much out of, you know, any individual whose life is not closely recorded. Uh, Are we giving her kind of selective attention or are we giving her proper attention? And as a historian of eight books on American history, I can say at least my conclusion walking away from writing this book is that I know of no other female patriot in American history who approaches the stature of Harriet Tubman. And so if you agree with me, <laughs> uh, if your conclusions run in the same direction as mine, I suggest you contact your representatives. There's now a bill, a uh, bipartisan bill, Republicans and uh, Democrats, Democrat um, Elijah Cummings, Republican John Katko of New York, uh, a bill to encourage the Trump administration to commit to putting Harriet Tubman on the $20 bill. Um, so I would urge you, if you are in agreement, to take this up with your representative. And of course, I hope you will read the Tubman Command. Thank you. I'd like to remind our audience online and in the radio that they're listening to uh, Elizabeth Cobbs speaking about her novel, The Tubman Command, about Harriet Tubman. And it's time for questions. How, how did you choose Harriet Tubman as a subject? Um, uh, that's a you know, wonderful question. I, I think most writers always have a few books kind of queued up in their minds, things that they, that they want to write about. And I, I don't know, I, I guess it partly because I had just written about Alexander Hamilton and I'd written before another novel based on the American Civil War. And, and I, I just wanted to write about somebody who I think, um, you know, who I thought embodies the best the best of us. Uh, and I didn't know that much about Harriet Tubman per se. I mean, you know, if you teach American history, you know about Harriet Tubman. I think we all, most of us, you know, know about enough about Harriet Tubman to write like say three sentences. <laughs> but if you ask people like, what state was she from? You know, what were the years she was on the underground railroad? Pro- did What did she do in the civil war? I think most of us don't really know. And so it was interesting for me to pursue that. And then to be quite honest, I got, I, I decided to put aside some other things I'd thought of doing after the 2016 election um, because I started to think about how hard it is for women to be leaders in general. And it was partly the candidacy of Hillary Clinton that made me start thinking about that. Um, I think that we have this idea with women leaders. We hold them to all kinds of different standards than we hold men. And, and part of this has to do with things like Harriet Tubman's love life. I mean, I think we expect women to be like you know, statues on pedestals, you know, and not be truly human. And if they are, then we have all kinds of criticisms of them. And now how did a woman lead men in the middle of the 19th century? Now, how did a black woman convince white officers in the middle of the 19th century? So she just became more and more, you know, curious to me. 
And, uh, and I just think she's such a remarkable person that that was the other challenge is to, you know, to make her human, right? Because I think when we do put people up on pedestals, it's really easy for the rest of us, <laughs> right? We go, oh, oh, I could never do that. <laughs> Rather than, you know, this is just a person, you know, who was scared, you know, who wanted to be loved, you know, who messed up sometimes, you know, who took risks and sometimes it worked out and sometimes they didn't. And I, I like that idea of kind of humanizing uh, a leader and especially a woman leader. Speaking of her love life, um, what was her love life? And were there children? Uh, what, uh, how did she take care of her children? If, if there were children, um, what did she have to do to protect her own family and and to explain all that to me, please? <laughs> all of the above. Well, you know, I mean, in writing the book, I learned so much, not just about Harriet Tubman, but, you know, I think we think of slavery as this kind of monolithic institution. We know it, it worked in somewhat different ways at different times for different people, but when you actually sort of live it, I mean, in the sense of imaginatively, and you're trying to walk your way in a daily way through someone's life and what that would look like. Now, first of all, you, you walk away realizing it, it works differently for men and then for women. I mean, men and women are exposed even today to different kinds of hazards and responsibilities. And so that's kind of interesting. And then you think about the family effects, right? And so with Harriet, um, again, things that I didn't know about her until I started researching the subject. She was married twice. So, all right, I hope I've already surprised you with something. Uh, <laughs> the first time she was married um, was when she was enslaved. In her early 20s, she married a man whose last name was Tubman. That's how she got the name, last name Tubman. Um, and he was free. Because in the part of the Upper South she lived in, in Maryland, about half of the African-American population was enslaved, and half was free. And it was just one of those... As I said, slavery worked differently in different places, and so they had a fairly large free black population. Now, what man would marry a woman knowing that his children by that woman would be slaves? He must have loved her a lot, right? He must have found her very attractive to know that. I mean, to, I mean is there any man here? Think about that, what that would mean, what that choice would mean. You'd have to, you have to really want to marry this woman because you'd have other choices if half the population is not as free, right? You could have married somebody else. Her second marriage was, was after the American Civil War, several years afterwards. She married a veteran of the U.S. Colored Troops and, uh, and he was 20 years her junior. So, <laughs> well, there's hope for all of us out there. Uh, so, so again, this is a man who, I mean, she wasn't a wealthy woman and yes, she had some notoriety, but that doesn't really get you much. And after the war, you know, it's whatever. Um, he must've thought she really had something. She must've been a very magnetic person. And, um, and so already, you know, now these are just the facts I can tell you, by the way, this is where we, this is why we use fiction to enter into imaginatively what that must've been like to say, well, this must've been a very magnetic and interesting and attractive woman. And, but she also said, the other thing we know about her, I mean, I won't go too long, otherwise I'll give you the whole book, and then you'll read it, so can't do too much. But um, one thing without too big a spoiler alert is simply that when she leaves her first husband, it's because he will not go with her. He will not, pers he not, will not accompany her. Now, by the way, just before you start, you know, hating him too much, because she, he then, by the way, turns around uh, after she leaves, she comes back from a year later to try and convince him again, and he's taken another wife a free woman this time, which she said broke her heart, you know, and you can imagine how it would, you know, he preferred this other woman who was, of course, free. And, well, that is actually a logical thing to prefer, you know, to know that your children will be born free. So you have to have empathy for him and for the horrible position that she was in. One of the mysteries about Harriet Tubman that, again, I will put that out there and you can, we can ruminate on it, was did she have a child? Now, some people, some very informed individual in the audience will say, wait, I know she adopted a child, and she did after the war. But the other question that historians don't know is, did she have a child by John Tubman that she had to leave behind when she left? 
So I'm not going to answer that question, but I do, of course, take it up in the book. Oh, dang. <laughs> yeah, but you asked a professor a question. You know, you ask a professor a question and you know you're going to get a long answer that's going to take in a lot of stuff. Could you tell us, what was the objective of the raid up the Cumbie River and did they meet their objective? What, what were they actually trying to accomplish? Yeah, very, very excellent question. So the Navy, of course, used the Sea Islands largely as just a naval base. But for the troops that were stationed there, they also had this double objective of trying to launch raids upon the coast. Uh, of course, Charleston was very close by. So there was this kind of continuing hope up until, you know, 1865. It took four years for them to finally subdue and to conquer um, Charleston. In this case, the immediate objective was to go upriver, um, destroy enemy stores, meaning they burned plantations, they burned rice stores, they took away what provisions they could. Uh, and they also liberated people. So they they took as many as they could, and they had to leave so many behind. And again, part of the novel is, you know, who gets out and who doesn't, right? So that's part of the mystery of the novel is who makes it onto those ships. Because um, 756 people get out. One of the three ships is grounded, so suddenly you're already down. You can't take as many people as you want. And these are ferry boats, too. They're kind of like these, you know, ungainly flat bottom ships that then have to sail out into an ocean sound. So the idea was to d- uh, destroy enemy stores, to make the South really understand what it was going to cost them. Now, this was really sort of the start of that form of warfare, which later, of course, we most of us know about, you know, the burning of Atlanta and Sherman's march to the sea. But that comes later. And that really is sort of the moment it becomes total war. But this is a very this is perhaps the first example of that. I don't have a question. Um, I have a comment, and and that is that I really want to thank you for the passion that you clearly poured into this novel and and how you have painted such a wonderful picture in 45 minutes. You know, I just feel like I'm really leaving with a sense of this woman and and with, you know, a, a hunger to learn more from your book. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. It's a, it's an honor for me. And it's, you know, it's hard, you know, to channel anybody who is of, you know, it's a different race, and, you know, different time period, who's from the South, you know, all of those things, who was enslaved, who was so heroic, and I haven't done anything remotely like that in my life. So, so thank you. Um, that's always the challenge of writing history, of course, is to try to, um, you know, try to bring people to life who are very different from us. But uh, I can think of, you know, hardly any woman in American history who would not deserve that more. And, of course, that goes to back to the campaign to put her on the $20 bill. That was a nationwide campaign to put a woman on, on American currency. By the way, we are the only democracy in the world that does not have a female on the currency. Um, you know, you can name almost any other democracy and you will. And it's, it's a natural thing. The currency, the paper currency, which circulates widely, uh, you know, symbolizes your democracy. Um, it says that there were people who made democracy possible. Uh, in our country, apparently there are no women who made democracy possible, if you were to judge us just solely on the basis of the currency, which doesn't seem quite right. But anyway, so with the, the funny thing is that there were a dozen or more women who were put up for a vote. And over time, there was a couple of series of votes, and they were winnowed down to four, one of which was Harriet Tubman. And she won by a long shot in a nationwide poll. So um, I think, I hope people are hungry to know about her, more about her. And I think that there is this sense that we have that she was something really very, very special. Well, it's clear that the more people would know, the more chance there will be that she'll take over the $20 bill. Now, you've already covered the $10 bill with Hamilton. Are you, are you on a, a quest to cover all of the different people who are on our bills? Well, I do sometimes think of this as my currency series. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know. You know, Benjamin Franklin. No, I don't. Uh, I don't know. But it is kind of funny, isn't it? Well, I think it's partly just because as a historian, you know, we have these things that seem obvious and we just take them for granted. It's like walking down past historical landmarks and we never stop and even look at the plaques, you know. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you think, you know, I just need to stop. I just need to stop and look. Um, I, I love the speech that was given um, several weeks ago by Representative Cummings of, of Maryland. And he was, it was in the context of the Michael Cohen hearings, but he gave this lovely speech. He says, you know, we're better than this. And I think as Americans, so often we're confronted with the ways in which we don't meet our ideals. You know, we're so divided at the moment um, that that 
people who rally us, the people we can look to and say, you know, we are better than this. Mm-hmm. These people are the better angels of our nature, and we need to know about them because mm-hmm. they give us courage and they give us strength and they give us inspiration. And they're as real as all the other stuff that we don't like. Mm-hmm. And we, we tend to so much focus on the things that drag us down that I think it's, you know, it's hard to keep our nose above water. Um, and so I think that someone like Harriet Tubman uh, is that kind of person. We're better than this. And she's such an example of that. You know, since you've done so much research into her life and everything and, and have a feel for her, if she gets on the $20 bill, what picture of her would you pick from a, from her end of her life, from the middle of her life, from this, this period of time during the Civil War or from earlier than that? Well, to me, there is no choice. <laughs> I think it should be the picture that is was only recently brought to life, and maybe you all know about this. This was this amazing thing that happened just last year, hmm. where somebody going through an album uh, collected by a- an abolitionist on, on the, on the, in the Northeast suddenly discovered a photograph of Harriet Tubman that none of us had ever seen before. Hmm. And it's about the age that she was at the time of the American Civil War. So it's the closest we have of her during the period that she was on the Underground Railroad. And it's just the most amazing picture. She is just this little tiny itty bitty thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's this teeny tiny waist and, you know, and actually as I was writing the novel and sort of trying to work up my own bravery to write about somebody as epic as Harriet Tubman, I put that picture on my desk because I would always say, now that's my Harriet Tubman. That's the one I'm writing about is this woman right here. That's what she looked like at the time she was writing. So rather than taking it for when she's in her sixties, which is most of our photographs or she's in her sixties or seventies or eighties, you know, perfectly fine photographs, but um, we didn't do that to Alexander Hamilton, so I don't think we should do that with Harry Tubman. Well, I think it's interesting because a lot of the a lot of the bills are of people when they were old, and a lot of them did their big things when they were young, and it's, it's kind of a you know an interesting part that we have to to remember people when they were actually already retired. Next question. You mentioned that when she uh, left uh, Mr. Tubman, she went off on some sort of activity. As a as an enslaved woman, a non-free woman, how would one go about traveling around the country and going about her business? Yeah. How would people know whether one was enslaved or not? Well, and you and hypothetically, you wouldn't, right? So, I mean, and Frederick Douglass writes about this too. People who manage to escape, it's sort of like being an escape artist right? How do escape artists do it? And obviously it takes a certain kind of personal strength, etc. And in Harriet Tubman's case, I mean, when she left the first time, she actually was going to go with her brothers. That was the plan. She and her two brothers and her two brothers chickened out and went back. Now, by the way, I don't make to sound like they're chickens or anything, but I'm just saying it's, it's tough and it's scary because you have to walk, you know, 80, hundred miles across train. You've never been across. Um, and so she, some combination of, she had, had had word of one Quaker woman, a white woman who was not far away. She went to her house first and got some directions and just kind of did it. Now, later on, so the, I think that probably the first journey out is the scariest and the hardest because you absolutely don't know where you're going. And she said she walked across the line into Pennsylvania and like, like looked at her hands and like, you know, couldn't believe that she was free, you know, this just amazing thing that happens. But then, of course, decides to go back for others. Um, in particular, her first raid back was because of her um, her sister's daughter, one of her sisters whom she never saw again. And to me, this is also part of the tragic story. Here she has four brothers and four sisters, never sees the sisters again. The sisters are sold south. And again, this is what happens with women in slavery versus men and all kinds of dynamics there. But um, she hears that the daughter of one of those sisters is going to be sold, who also has young children as her sister had had when she was sold. And she decides to go back for her. And we don't know exactly all how she does it. I mean, she tells us a little story. There are some stories and we know from, um, other conductors, um, uh, both in uh, Delaware and William Still, who was a black abolitionist in Philadelphia, you know, they made notes, and we so we have some of their records. I saw Harriet Tubman today. She came into town with six people. This person and that person and that person. But she didn't always follow the same routes. Um, she would have written passes. And then she was just cheeky. What can you say? She was just cheeky. <laughs> so like at one point she was walking along and suddenly she sees up ahead some men who she knows are going to stop her. I mean, this is one of the recorded events that we have. And she knows as she approaches them that they're starting to ask everybody for their passes. Now, of course, 
she doesn't want to turn around right then. Because if you turn around there, they're going to know you're on the run. So instead, she walks right up to them and she starts to flirt with the guy. And she talks about how she's looking for a new husband. And it's this big joke, laugh, laugh, laugh. Um, and they say, okay, uh, you just come on through. So uh, other times she uses other expedients. She dresses up as an old person, et cetera. So she has various disguises that she uses. So how long did you work on this novel? I know when you finished the last one, but when did you start this one? Um, I started this novel about, oh, I'd say two years ago. Um, it takes about a year to write a novel, but then you, uh, it takes quite a while to edit it and quite a while to sort of send it out and then to get it in print. I mean, it's just, there are always these, you know, mm-hmm. you know, you know, things that are happening alongside it that other people have a role in. Um, so that was, and I, and I also, I just wanted to take such care with this novel mm-hmm. now, um, it does mean a lot to me. Yeah. Well, thank you very, very much. Thank you. And so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 117th year of enlightened discussion.